Okay, well, every blessing to you all, and welcome back to my open air pulpit. It's around one degree Celsius for those that uh, may care to know, but I'm happy to say, although it's rather cold, the sun is shining and uh, very much aiding me with some much needed warmth. So praise the Lord for that. I'm happy to say that my goal to read the Word of God uh, within a month is going very nicely. Praise the Lord. I've arrived at Leviticus 23 and my initial goal was to try and read 44, 45 pages a day in one sitting, which has proven to be somewhat difficult. I thought it would take around 90 minutes to do so and it's taken around two and a half hours. And therefore what I'm now doing is splitting my reading into three parts of the day. 45 minutes in the morning, 45 minutes in the afternoon, and 45 minutes in the evening. It's not too late for those of you which perhaps haven't begun uh, with me as of January the 1st, but I will say that if you try and start now, it's going to be quite an uphill task. You will have to read around 180 pages a day to catch up. And I think for most people that is gonna be impossible. If I were to attempt to read, say, 86 pages a day, that would take me probably six hours or thereabouts, which is impossible. So although it's not impossible to catch up with me, I will level with you and say it's pretty much uh, gonna be an uphill battle to try and do so. If you can't make uh, three reads a day, if three reads a day at say 45 minutes a read is still too much for you, then perhaps try six reads a day. Six reads a day, say at 20 minutes a read. Not impossible. If you think of the amount of time that people spend online, like on Twitter or Facebook or YouTube, or watching television or reading newspapers or just talking to people on the phone, you can realize pretty quickly, can't you, that it's not impossible. It comes down to priority. It comes down to disciplining yourself. The Jews back in the Old Testament would pray three times a day to the Lord. They made time to do so. So, it does demonstrate to me that if you want to do something such as this, you can do something such as this. But again, it comes down to discipline. It comes down to prioritizing what you want to do. And like I say, as of last night, I arrived at Leviticus 23. And as I knew all along, I would be rediscovering things. I would be discovering new things. And the Lord would be continuing to shine more light on the Word of God. We have to renew our minds. We have to not only be Bible believers, but Bible readers. And the more you read the Scripture, the more you spend time with the Lord in His Word and in prayer as well. You can be a great blessing to many people. You can never learn enough. You can never know enough. But like I say, the whole point of doing this is to get closer to the Lord. It's not about bragging. It's not about saying to people, look at me, I'm this great super duper person. I'm able to do A, B, and C. No, if you do that, you will lose your blessings. That's what the uh, Pharisees would do. They would boast about being very pious, very religious. And Christ told us over in uh, Matthew chapter six that they've had their reward. They've had the recognition from those that they were boasting to. That's not what this is about. This is about a closer relationship with Almighty God. So please turn to Leviticus chapter 10 and what I want to attempt to do today on this beautiful January morning is look at the Catholic Church and this will be uh, done uh, via a request that we received from a friend of the ministry concerning their 82 year old mother and the friend of the ministry is worried about their Catholic mother very much caught up in the false notion that somehow their good works are going to please the Lord, that somehow they're good without do the bad. It's a dangerous philosophy, it's a dangerous belief, and it infuriates me when I listen to Catholics playing it down, lying about works not being needed for salvation when their church teaches that very thing, that works are needed to be saved and to stay saved. The Catholic Church continues to offer indulgences 
to faithful Catholics. In fact, this year is the 100th anniversary of the so-called appearance of Mary in uh, Fatima in uh, Portugal. And we've written about that notorious vision. Of course, it wasn't Mary. It was an unclean spirit. And Catholics are promised that if they make it to Fatima this year, or if they be a better, quote-unquote, Catholic, they will receive a greater indulgence. You see, for the Catholic, their great fear is not going to hell. Most Catholics don't believe in hell. No, their great fear is to go to purgatory and burn in purgatory and burn and burn and burn. They are being purged. You see, for them, they have no assurance of salvation. For them, they have to do something. They have to top it up, as it were. There's no done deal, and that's the tragedy of the matter. They have to work in order to appease uh, their deity, which of course is a heresy. It's uh, not only a dangerous belief, it is very much anti-scriptural. So what I want to try and do today, if I can, is dismantle such a notion. But before I get into Leviticus chapter 10, ask yourself this. If you hold to the blasphemous belief that your works play some part in your salvation, Ask yourself this, or answer my analogy now. Let's say it's 5 p.m. and it's Friday afternoon and you've had a good week. You haven't lied, you haven't stolen, you haven't lusted, you haven't overslept, you haven't underslept, you haven't overeaten, you haven't undereaten, and you are driving home. It's a good week, like I say you've been upright, you've had no impure thoughts, you haven't been unkind to anyone, you've been pretty special and you haven't sinned throughout that entire week. It's 5 p.m., you're heading home, and as far as you are concerned, you are in a state of grace. Okay, so based on those that hold to works being an aid to one's salvation, you're good to go. At a minute past five, somebody cuts you up and you start to get very angry. You shout out of the window some obscenity, or you have an impure thought in your heart. You become very angry, and within 10 seconds, 10, 10 seconds of being very angry, within 10 seconds of shouting some obscenity out of the window, you crash into the car in front of you, and you die without confessing your transgression to the Lord. Ask yourself this, where do you go? Do you go to heaven or do you go to hell? Most people, if they are honest with themselves, would tell you that if you don't confess your sins, you go straight to hell. And that terror hangs over the heads of many people, not just Catholics, but many Protestants as well. Because for them, if they don't confess their sins, like straight away, or at the end of each day, and if they were to die as a result, or before confessing their sins, they go straight to hell. They have no assurance of salvation. How can you live like that? What that is telling me in essence is this, that such people are trusting in themselves to be saved, or at best, they are trusting in their prayers, they are trusting in their confessions, to stay saved, which of course is another gospel. Either Christ died for your sins, or he didn't. Either he died in your place, or he didn't. So go back to that analogy one more time. It's 5 p.m., the day is coming to an end, you haven't sinned, and even that is probably impossible, but let's just say for argument's sake, that you didn't lie that entire week, you didn't steal that entire week, you didn't lust, that entire week. You didn't oversleep or undersleep or overdrive or underdrive. You didn't do anything wrong for that entire week. You were faithful 24-7 in word, thought and deed. And based on that people will say, well I'm in a state of grace. If I were to die with all of that uh, put to my account, I would go straight to heaven. And yet, at a minute past five you get cut up, you start shouting and screaming, or at least having angry thoughts 
in your heart. And the next thing you know, you've gone right into the back of the car in front of you, you've died, and based on a lot of self-righteous people, you lose your salvation and go straight to hell. It's ridiculous, of course, and that analogy may be somewhat of an extreme analogy to give, and yet I still think it is relevant, applicable, and honest as well. Most people will run to their priest to confess what they do, and yet at the same time, a lot of Catholics don't go to confession anymore. A lot of Catholics don't think it's wrong to practice uh, contraception. And yet their church continues to teach that such is a mortal sin. But when it comes to the Catholic Church, when it comes to assessing the Catholic Church, they've been very skillful, they've been very good at deceiving people, at offering themselves as a Christian church. And they've been able to do that for a number of reasons. Number one, because those that they are deceiving are not Bible believers. And that's why, I think it was around 20 years ago, a lot of apostates and false brethren went over to the Church of Rome. I think there were 5,000 Anglican vicars that went over to the Church of Rome and became Catholic priests. A lot of evangelicals and fundamentalists, so-called, went over to Rome. Such people, of course, are false brethren. Such people, of course, were never saved to begin with. Such people, according to the book of, uh, the book of Hebrews, have crucified Christ afresh and therefore cannot be redeemed. You see, if Christ died for your sins, if he went uh, into the grave once, if he was resurrected once, if he made it clear to you that such was sufficient to save a sinner, if you simply put your faith in that, to then turn around and say, well, actually, Lord, I'm not going to receive that as sole payment for my sins. I'm going to join a system which denies that. I'm going to join a system which condemns that, I'm going to join a system which curses that and do my own works on top of what you've done, not only is that an abomination to the Lord, not only is that heretical, but again it's crucifying Christ afresh. And according to the book of Hebrews, if you do that, you cannot be redeemed. You are forever lost. You are forever damned. That's how serious this whole subject is. So the quickest way to look at the Catholic Church and try and identify who she is, what she is, but on top of that to expose her wickedness is to go to the Scriptures. And that's why the Catholic Church condemns the Scriptures. That's why the Catholic Church says that she gets her truths, uh, so-called, not just from the Scriptures, but from tradition alone. We don't care about tradition. I spoke about the Seventh-day Adventists last week and I made the case, somewhat uh, tongue-in-cheek, that if they had the truth, if they really believed in the truth, that they would spend all of their time getting the Gospel out, putting scripture signs outside their churches. And yet go back to one of my walking-talking sermons before Christmas when I spoke about travesty or the subject was called travesty, when I spoke about those that go onto the streets with pamphlets, promoting their place of worship. And I made the case that such pamphlets couldn't save anyone. And that got me thinking about some of these so-called places of worship. You're heading off on your travels, you're very low, you are looking for something, someone to take the burden from you, and you come across a Jehovah's Witness hall or a Masonic Hall. Both are very similar, incidentally. And from the outside, it looks like a closed carpet shop. There are no scriptures outside the Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Hall or the uh, Mormon Steakhouse. And you could just walk straight past such a building and not even be aware that such a building offers itself as a place of worship. No scripture signs outside such a place of worship. Know how to be saved outside such a place of worship. What's going on? We'll go back to my message. Such places are retaining the goodies for themselves. Such places think that only they have the goodies and if you want to receive the goodies you've got to go along and 
become a good JW or a good Mormon or a good Catholic. Even the uh, fundamental churches and the evangelical churches are not much better. I can think of one huge church in my town that apparently spent two million pounds, two million pounds on a new roof. And yet, if you were to walk past that church, and I have on many occasions, there are no scripture signs outside. Not even John 3.16. And that makes you think, doesn't it? As to what is really going on in such places. But if you were to sit down with a Catholic and ask him or her to explain their system to you, they would say, well, the priest is a throwback to the Old Testament priest. In other words, the Old Testament priest, um, which the Jews would go to, has been replaced with a Catholic priest. The two don't even match up. You see, it comes down to this, and I get to Leviticus uh, 10 shortly. <laughs> it comes down to this, that the Catholic Church have been very skillful, and I use that word carefully, not to commend them, but to condemn them. They've been very skillful in replacing Rome with Jerusalem, with replacing the Old Testament priesthood with a Catholic priesthood. They've been very skillful in replacing the Old Testament sacrifice with the sacrifice of the Mass. And I'll speak about that shortly. But from Leviticus 10, and finally we arrive there, uh, verse 8, we read the following. And the Lord spake unto Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine nor strong drink, thou nor thy sons with thee, when ye go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations, and that ye may put difference between holy and unholy, and between unclean and clean, and that ye may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord hath spoken unto them by the hand of Moses. A lot of material there from Leviticus 10, 8. 9 again, do not drink wine nor strong drink. I can think of two priests that were awful alcoholics. And I can think of one occasion concerning one of those priests who would be drinking day and night, and on one occasion he was so intoxicated that he ran out of the presbytery in the dead of night, it was pouring with rain, and according to what he told us, so this is straight from the horse's mouth, he was stark naked, dancing around outside his church, and one of his parishioners drove past the church, saw this priest outside the presbytery, stark naked, intoxicated, and that parishioner was so shocked that they phoned the bishop up and the next morning the bishop got onto a canon who was responsible for that diocese, that parish, and he was sent down to speak to this parish priest about his conduct and what was relayed to us was somewhat of an interesting conversation. Apparently the canon was also an alcoholic and these two got into a conversation and in essence they blackmailed each other. Do not drink wine nor strong drink. When I used to go to Mass I can think of several occasions where drunk Catholics would attend Mass, not just Midnight Mass or Easter Sunday but Sundays in general and they would go up to receive communion from the priests and they were drunk and the priests wouldn't stop them from taking of the Eucharist. Do not drink wine nor strong drink, and yet when you take of the chalice, you are drinking wine, literal wine, not fruit juice. You are taking literal wine. So already, from this one verse alone, we find a contradiction. We don't find anything matching up with what the Catholic Church would have us believe. Do not drink wine nor strong drink. Thou, nor thy sons, with thee. Catholic priests are told that they cannot marry. They are told that it is not permitted to be married. Catholic nuns are also told not to marry. 
that it's not permitted to be a nun and a married woman at the same time. And yet over in 1 Timothy chapter 4, I believe it is, Paul speaks about such uh, teachings like abstaining from foods, like forbidding to marry, coming from doctrines of devils, unclean spirits. A lot of these uh, Taoist monks are also expected to be celibate. They are expected to not marry. It's one thing to remain single, but it's something altogether different to put a blanket ban on priests marrying or nuns. Every priest in the Old Testament was a married priest. And yet Catholic priests are, forbidden, uh, are forbidden to marry. Do not drink wine nor strong drink. In other words, don't touch alcohol, thou nor thy sons with thee, when you go into the tabernacle of the congregation. Put that to a Catholic when you go to offer the Eucharist, when you go to uh, perform the Mass, when you go into the Catholic Church to bring Christ down from heaven, referred to as transubstantiation, an awful word. Lest ye die, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Also remember this, if you will, that Catholics are not dispensational. They don't know the difference, really, between exegeting the Old Testament compared to exegeting the New Testament. They are unable to take the two Testaments and teach them separately or teach them correctly. Not just the Catholics, but the Seventh-day Adventists as well. They fail terribly when it comes to reading the Scriptures and correctly interpreting the Scriptures. And I'll come back to that shortly. 10. And that ye may put difference between holy and unholy, and between unclean and clean. And yet Catholic priests will drink alcohol before Mass, during Mass, like the drinking of wine from the Eucharist, and by doing so, according to this, have violated Scripture. 11. And that ye may teach the children of Israel, not Catholics, not Protestants, this isn't for us, this isn't even for Catholics or Protestants, incidentally, this is for the Jews. But again, because Catholics are unable to rightly divide the word of truth, because Catholics are unable to understand what is for them and what was for the children of Israel, they cause a huge blunder when it comes to interpreting scripture. Somebody once said that the Bible is all to us, but it's not all for us. In other words, you can take every word from this book as gospel truth, and I certainly do, but I know that not everything in this book is for me doctrinally. In fact, not even everything in this book is spiritually for me or for you that are saved. A lot of the Old Testament was given to the Jews, of course, for the Old Testament, and a lot of the Old Testament will be used or come back into play throughout the millennium. Only parts of the Old Testament are spiritually applicable to those of us living today. For example, I'll just offer this as a quick footnote. In the Old Testament, if you were to receive leprosy, awful disease, you wouldn't go to your doctor to be helped. You go to your priest to be helped. And yet today, if you were to be diagnosed with leprosy, and people still do get leprosy in parts of the world, your priest couldn't help you. Your pastor couldn't help you. You'd have to go to your doctor who would then probably refer you to a hospital specialist. So even that isn't spiritual. I mean, just try that for a minute. Just go to your local priest or your pastor and tell him that you are suffering with leprosy or any kind of physical ailments. At best, he could pray for you, but he couldn't intercede for you. He couldn't help you. As an Old Testament priest would be able to do so, go to chapter 16, please chapter 16. What I really want to do is drive the point home that the Catholic Church is a dangerous counterfeit. On top of that, it is a pointless counterfeit. It is a system which isn't needed. It's like this. Let's say you have been left a very generous inheritance, set up for life, and yet somebody forgets to tell you that. 
and you grow up and you start to go into the world and you start to struggle and you have to do two or three jobs just to make it through each day and then someone comes along down the line and says to you but didn't you know that your late grandfather or your late grandmother or a close relative who loved you very much left you a general inheritance a good inheritance and that was more than enough not just for one person but for maybe ten people to make it to the rest of their lives you'd feel as sick as a parrot wouldn't you you'd say why didn't someone tell me well this is what I'm trying to do today I'm trying to make it clear to you that Christ has died for your sins that he's paid the price for your sins you don't need to go into a system and trust in that system because if you do you are going to be damned listen there is no salvation in the Catholic Church or in the Mormon religion or in the Jehovah's Witnesses or in the Seventh-day Adventists or in ex-Catholics of Christ there is no salvation in any system anywhere in the world any ministry anyone anywhere anytime you told very clearly that there's only one mediator between men and God the man Christ Jesus <clears throat> chapter 16 look at verse 1 please and the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered before the Lord and died and the Lord said unto Moses speak unto Aaron thy brother that he come not at all times into the holy place within a veil before the mercy seat which is upon the ark that he die not for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat there's a wrong type of worship Aaron's sons were put to death by the Lord why because they worshiped the Lord in vain they approached the Lord intoxicated their sacrifice like Cain's was unacceptable to the Lord you were told very clearly that your righteousness is as filthy rags in the presence of the Lord the best you can do is still no good with the Lord all this talk about going to Fatima and receiving an indulgence or being a good old Catholic and going to mass every day twice a day it means nothing absolutely nothing to the Lord what you are doing in essence is not only trying to bribe the Lord with your good works so-called but at the same time you are putting yourself on an equal par on an equal setting with Christ you are trying to offer yourself as being just as as holy just as righteous as a son of God it won't work you can't live like Christ lived when I look over the last couple of hundred years and I look at people like Gandhi uh, and other people very upright very respected by their peers and yet they all died lost they were substituting Christ's righteousness for their own and it won't work and here you've got the death of the two sons of Aaron because they offered strange fire to the Lord and if you get a chance read Leviticus to get the background to that and as such they were put to death there's an account concerning uh, King David when the Ark of the Covenant was making its way to him and some overzealous character stepped out and put his impure hands unclean hands defiled hands onto the Ark of the Covenants and the Lord just killed him again it's the wrong type of worship and I think when people arrive at the Great White Throne Judgment they're going to be just aghast that their best works meant nothing whatsoever when we talk about imputation we are speaking about taking someone's righteousness instead of your own but you see even that gets lost on many people even that is something which goes over the heads of many people and that's why the Catholics and the Muslims and the Jews and the Buddhists and the Taoists and the Freemasons and every theist system in the world get on so well because they are all trusting in their own righteousness to save them they are trusting in doing something instead of receiving what has been done for you 
For example, you might say to me, well, James, I believe that Christ died for my sins. I'm a good Catholic. Okay, if that's the case, if you trust in Christ alone to save you, or if you are trusting in Christ alone to save you, or if you are going to trust in Christ alone to save you, quit going to Mass. Because every time you go into Mass, or every time you step into a church building, and I'm going to try and broad this out now to cover JWs and Mormons and other false religions, every time you step into a place of worship, the truth of the matter is this, that you are doing so because you think that it plays some part in your salvation. You, you're not really trusting what Christ has done for you. And that's why Catholics go to Mass. Catholics go to Mass to appease the Lord. Catholics go to Mass because they want to get saved and stay saved. And yet, even that isn't really Catholic teaching because a Catholic is never saved in this life. A Catholic cannot be saved in this life, hence why they have to continue to go through a system. Look at verse 6 from chapter 16. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. When I went to Mass for many years, I don't remember any animals being brought into the church. I don't remember any priest cutting the neck of an animal. The Old Testament priest would be responsible for sacrificing animals, literally, uh, burning uh, the remains of animals, literally, and eating the remains of animals, literally. I don't find that in any Catholic church anywhere in the world today. On top of that, what happens if you are a vegetarian Catholic priest? By definition, you are going against scripture. Seven, and he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Aaron has to offer a sacrifice for himself and for his house, like his wife and children, Priests aren't married with children, at least not uh, officially. Unofficially, oh yeah, unofficially, a lot of Catholic priests are married and uh, some have children. And of course, a lot of priests are involved with men. I received an email a while ago from a lady who, who lives in America. and She was saying to me that she is in love with a Catholic priest. And she said to me that uh, he won't admit that he is in love with her as well. And she was saying to me that she wants him to leave the priesthood and get married too. And I thought, where do we come into this? We have no interest as ex-Catholics in responding to such an inquiry. I mean, a Catholic woman getting involved with a Catholic priest, having a relationship with such a person and expecting us to somehow advise her on what to do with a Catholic priest is somewhat of a farce. So you see, the whole thing is a joke from top to bottom, but parishioners are very much kept in the dark. Parishioners are very ignorant as to what their priests get up to. I'd like to spend a lot of time talking about that, but I won't. Chapter 17. Chapter 17. Look at verse 3, please. What man serve there be of the house of Israel that killeth an ox or lamb or goat in the camp or that killeth it out of the camp and bringeth it not unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, to offer an offering unto the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord. Blood shall be imputed unto that man. He hath shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. To the end, that the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices, which they offer in the open field. Even that they may bring them unto the Lord, unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, unto the priest, and offer them for peace offerings unto the Lord. Where does that happen today? Anywhere in the world. What Catholic watching this video around the world takes his or her sacrifice to their priest to be sacrificed? It doesn't happen. You see, the Old Testament system was a bloody sacrifice. But in the Church of Rome, they offer a non-bloody sacrifice. The two are not the same. 
the two don't even match up. What you can do as a Bible-believing Christian is take such verses and spiritualize them. For example, in the Old Testament, you would bring a literal animal to the priest to uh, atone for your sins. Such a sacrifice could never take away your sins, but what it could do is cover your sins. So for the New Testament, what you do is present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You abstain from all the appearance of sin. You live a holy, upright life. But for the Catholic, they can't delineate between the two. They read verses such as this and are puzzled. And yet at the same time, will tell Catholics that the priesthood of Rome is found in the scriptures. It doesn't even come near. On top of that, you've got a man who is being condemned for inappropriately sacrificing an animal and not doing it via the spirit of scripture. 21. 21, look at verse 9, please. And the daughter of any priest, if she profane herself by playing the whore, she profaneth her father, she shall be burnt with fire. It is insinuated, it is clearly stated that a priest in the Old Testament would be a married man with children. Now, for the New Testament, to be an elder of a church doesn't necessarily mean you have to be married with children. Okay, but most of the apostles were married with children. Maybe John, the son of Zebedee, was single. Maybe Paul was either single or a widower. We're not overly sure. Uh, but the clear distinction from Scripture would be that the priests were married with children. And here, this piece of Scripture makes it clear that if a daughter of a priest were to become a whore, sleeping around, she was to be put to death with fire. As far as I know, and I'm happy to be corrected, but as far as I know, there isn't any occasion in the Old Testament where a man or woman that fell foul of the Lord would be put to death by fire. The main method for executing sinners would be through stoning not for the burning of fire. Also, a quick footnote to offer before I get back to this. What has also intrigued me as I'm reading my way, as, as I'm working my way through the Word of God, and like I say, up to uh, Leviticus 23, is the Lord gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, Exodus 20, going into 21, 22, 23, 24. At the same time of giving the law to Moses, there is a commotion in the camp. Idolatry is broken out. And Aaron, of course, is one of the ringleaders of that incident. And that shows me two things. It shows me on the one hand that the Lord is holy, that he won't lower his standard for anyone, which is absolutely so, and absolutely correct as well. And yet at the same time of giving his law to Moses, the law is being broken by the children of Israel. You see, I don't think it's possible to make it through life without ever sinning. And that's why I gave the analogy at the beginning of this message. I think it is possible to live a holy life, a righteous life. It is, it is possible to be upright and put people to shame. But I don't think it's possible to live sinless or be sinless 24-7. And that's why it's interesting to me when I look at the scriptures and I read about such an event, the law being given and at the same time in the camp, the children of Israel, the Lord's people, are falling, failing. On top of that, it's very interesting to see the Lord's people very much involved with priests. For example, Joseph would marry a priest's daughter, a Gentile priest, a pagan priest's daughter. Moses would marry a Gentile priest's daughter. A lot of religion in the Bible, a lot of priests in the Bible, uh, maybe I'll come back and further discuss that shortly. Look at verse 18, please, from Leviticus 21. For whatsoever man he be that hath a blemish, or shall not, excuse me, he shall not approach a blind man or a lame, 
or he that hath a flat nose or anything superfluous, or a man that is broken-footed or broken-handed or crook-backed or dwarf, or that hath a blemish in his eye, or be scurvy or scabbed or hath his stones broken. No man that hath a blemish of the seed of Aaron the priest shall come nigh to offer the offerings of the Lord made by fire. He hath a blemish, he shall not come nigh to offer the bread of his God. Which means simply this, that to be a priest in the Old Testament, it was absolutely mandatory to have no physical or no noticeable defect. Because if people were focusing on the defect of the priest, like having uh, a flat nose or a blind man or lame or broken-footed or broken-handed, a dwarf or one that has broken stones, broken testicles, scurvy, scabbed, or anything superfluous, such would take the spotlights off the Lord. And yet look at priests today all over the world. A lot of Catholic priests are disabled, have uh, physical defects. In fact, I think it was last year, there was a female uh, woman who was ordained as a bishop in the Church of England. And this female priest, quote unquote, had an awful defect on her facial area, I forget where it was, and I thought to myself, according to scripture, according to what we just read, she is in violation because her physical defect is on view for all to see. Now, for the New Testament Christian, for those of us which are saved, we know that such a piece of scripture isn't applicable. But I'm making the point again that for Catholics and Protestants and a lot of other groups, they can't distinguish. They don't know the difference. They couldn't exegete Leviticus 21 or Romans 12 if their lives depended upon it. So you see, they are not even consistent with their own beliefs. But this piece of scripture makes it very clear that a priest in the scripture, a priest in Leviticus, a priest from the Old Testament, and again, the Catholic priest will look back to the Old Testament for support, for validation, isn't able to be a priest if he has any kind of physical defect. So keep all that in mind. And if you can, crack open a Bible and read what I've been showing you this morning. Because at the end of the day, your souls, your eternal souls, depend on what I am trying to explain to you today. Either you trust in a person to save you or mediate for you, like a priest, or you trust in the person, the man, Christ Jesus. It's as simple as that. And that's why I gave the analogy last time, that two's company and three's a crowd. Go to Isaiah. So we looked at some of the Old Testament teachings concerning Jewish priests being married, having children, and what they could and could not do, and what the Lord would accept when it, can, when it comes to a priest representing him, uh, mediating between the people of Israel and the one true God. And again, the priest will look to the Old Testament as validation for his current office. And you've seen, what, half a dozen verses which disprove that. The whole thing is a great hoax. Can't you see that? It's like evolution. It's a great hoax. Isaiah chapter 1, look at verse 18. Bit of good news. Come now, and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. You have to deny yourself. You have to see yourself as no good. You have to come to the end of yourself. You have to stop doing religion. And you have to turn from that. You have to quit that. You have to receive Christ. For by grace are you saved by faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a free deal. It's like the inheritance account that I gave you. 
a little while ago. Someone has done something for you. Someone loves you so much that they have done something for you. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. It's time for a covenant. It's time for a relationship. Step forward. Though your sins be as scarlet, every word, thought and deed will be judged. And if you die as an unsaved man or woman, off to hell you go. They shall be as white as snow, cleansed by the blood of course. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That's good scripture. That's a good scripture. That's good news. And yet all the years of going to Mass, go to Matthew chapter 11 please, I never once heard that preached. Never once heard about the blood of Christ. I never once heard how Christ died for our sins. It was very much go to Mass. It was very much uh, do, the, do the Rosary, the Hail Mary, go to confession, recite the Lord's Prayer. It was very much a works-based system. And I can understand that because man wants to do something. People want to do something. People want to belong to a system. People want to be either political or religious. They want to join a golf club or a gym. They want to do something. They want to belong somewhere. They want to be a part of a system. I can understand that. But when it comes to salvation, you don't need any of that. You just receive Christ through faith as a child would do. Matthew 11, look at verse 28 please. Come unto me, all you that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come unto me. He doesn't say come unto the Catholic Church via the priest. He doesn't say go and join the local kingdom hall or the local steakhouse. Come unto me. What a statement to make. All ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you a rest. All of you which are worn down doing religion, like the five pillars of Islam, going to mass, fasting, abstaining from this or that, trying to be a better person. He says, forget it. You won't do it anyway. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart. And you shall find rest unto your souls. That's great news. People say, well, I'm going to, try and get to heaven. I'm going to try and uh, speak to the Lord. I'm going to try and uh, uh, do a deal with him. Well, put it this way. Let's say you are wanting to go on holiday and you think to yourself, I want to go to Paris for the weekend. I want to go, I want to, go to Rome for the weekend. I want to go to Portugal, Lisbon for the weekend. And you arrive at the airport, but you've got no passport. Do you honestly think that a quick chat with the check-in assistant is going to somehow allow you to board that plane? I mean, do you really think that a quick chat with the pilot is going to allow you to board that plane? You have, you have no passport, you have no uh, traveler's insurance, you have no money. In fact, if you were to make it to a country of your choice, the chances are you'd have to go through immigration. For example, if you go to Australia or New Zealand or Canada, they are very thorough about who enters their country and they will spend a lot of time quizzing you, wanting to know who you are and why you want to visit their country. And they also want to know how much money you are bringing with you because they don't want you to be a burden to the state. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This piece of scripture, incidentally, gets overlooked, not just by Catholics, but by Calvinists as well. The flip side to Catholicism is Calvinism. And I have mentioned this many times over the years, and I'll just say this very briefly, that the Catholics will teach a faith and works package to at least try to stay saved. The Catholic has no concept of being saved. Whereas a Calvinist will come along and say that if you are saved, if you've been chosen for salvation, that your works will be evidence of being saved. Both, of course, are false beliefs, false uh, teachings, and yet continue to be propagated by 
I'm going to say enemies of the cross, people that attack grace, people that attack what Christ has done for us on the cross. Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden. What would Christ say? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. What a statement to make. And yet people continue to reject Christ. They continue to offer their own works as being somehow pleasing to the Lord, as Cain would do. And of course, you know the rest. He would be later castigated by the Lord. Come unto me, all you that labour and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, permanent rest. Rest from your works, rest from your struggles, and rest from your sins. Everlasting life. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Only a fool would pass us up. Only a fool would turn to Mary and the Mass. Muhammad, Joseph Smith, Charles Taze Russell, Albert Pike. When this is being offered to you, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Such great news. Go to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7, and yet it continues to be rejected. It continues to be kicked against. There's no doubt, as far as I'm concerned, that Satan's, or one of his greatest achievements, has got to be the creation of the Catholic Church. This huge surrogate system, this huge counterfeit church, set up to enslave many people tens of millions of people. Hebrews 7. Now Hebrews goes nicely with Leviticus. Revelation goes nicely with Daniel. Hebrews 7, look at verse 26 please. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's for this he did once when he offered up himself christ is very much in a league of his own if you ever take the time to look at so-called religious people or even secular people within five minutes of doing so you will see that christ is completely in a league of his own never sinned once Never failed once, never disappointed his father once. He meant what he said and said what he meant. For such an high priest became us. We don't need the Pope as our high priest. We don't need a priest as our priest. We have Christ, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. No Catholic priest could claim this. And made higher than the heavens. You couldn't claim this for yourself either. Who needeth not daily, as those high priests, Old Testament, to offer up sacrifice, sometimes daily, sometimes weekly, first for his own sins, Christ of course was sinless, and then for the people's, for this he did once when he offered up himself. Now why can't you get that, if you are a Catholic? Why can't you get that? Why do you have to crucify Christ afresh? in a non-bloody way. Why can't you receive what he's done for you? <clears throat> Number one, because you're not saved. Number two, because you don't believe in the word of God. And number three, because you've been deceived. And I know that for a lot of Catholic people, they are victims of their own religion. I do understand that. I even believe that many Catholic priests are also victims of their own religion. I appreciate that for a lot of Catholic priests that are in their 70s and 80s now have been in that system all of their lives. In fact, for a lot of Catholic priests that are up in years now, they went to junior seminary when they were 12, 13, 14. In fact, Patrick is writing about Joseph Stalin for January's newsletter. And he too went to junior seminary and was scarred. On top of that, we were somewhat surprised to discover just how religious uh, 
Stalin was. But he too had the wrong type of religion. He too was worshipping God or a God of his choosing in his own way. And that of course would be an abomination to the Lord. Chapter 10, look at verse 12 please. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. No priest in the Old Testament could ever sit down. He was always offering sacrifices on behalf of the children of Israel. From henceforth, expecting till his enemies become his footstool. For by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. That's good news. For by one offering, not two offerings, not three offerings, for by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. He dies on the cross once, he's buried once, he's resurrected once. Unlike the Old Testament priest that was always having to sacrifice animals on behalf of the children of Israel, not to take away their sins, but to cover their sins. When Christ arrived, John would say, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. It's a one-off act, but it gets missed. It gets overlooked. It gets completely discarded by people. But this man, Christ Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. It is finished. Mission accomplished. From henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Are you an enemy of the Lord? Are you trying to do it yourself? Are you bypassing the precious blood? Are you trying to get yourself saved? Are you going to trust in your own good works? If you are, according to this, you are an enemy of the Lord. Go to 1 Peter. Catholics say Peter was a Pope. That is also incorrect. Catholics spend far too much time looking towards Peter and the Gospels. They should be looking towards Paul and the Epistles. 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3, look at verse 18, please. For Christ also hath suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins. You can't miss it, can you? The just for the unjust. He's just, you are unjust. He was sinless, you are sinful. He's the saviour, you are the sinner. That he might bring us to God, mediator. No mention of Mary. No mention of the mass. No mention of your church. Being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, hell. Which sometime of disobedience, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few as that is eight, were saved by water. He dies once, he comes up once. He goes into the ground and he preaches to those that are referred to here as being spirits in prison. Hell, of course. And he proclaims victory over such people. Go to Romans chapter 6 and I will close. And I really hope and pray that if you are a Catholic, or if you are an unsaved person, or if you are a religious person, a righteous person, and you hope, or you are thinking, or you are of the belief that you are a good person, and when you die, that somehow God will congratulate you, I've got news for you, he will condemn you. Because you're no good. Listen, I'm no good. 
I've been saved 15 years. I struggle every day. It's not just what I do, it's what I don't do. And that's why you have to receive grace as being grace. Romans 6, look at verse 8, please. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Spiritually dead, of course, not physically dead. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Now if we be dead with Christ, hid with Christ, imputation, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. You can't bring Christ down from heaven and crucify him afresh. Not only is that impossible, it's not necessary. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Now if you get that, and please excuse my sniffing, if you get that, if you receive that, if you trust in that, you are the most blessed man or woman on the face of this earth. And no other religious system anywhere in the world can come anywhere near that. But if you pass it up, if you turn from it, if you don't receive it, if you kick against it, if you continue to go into a church system that denies that, you are cursed. So I think I've said all I want to say today and I will just repeat myself one last time how Catholics have shamefully bypassed the New Testament plan of salvation being grace through faith in Christ alone. They have substituted Jerusalem for Rome as their headquarters. They've taken the Old Testament priesthood, perverted it, and substituted it for a Catholic priest system. And like Muslims and other false religions, they pick and choose bits of the New Testament for their own agenda. But for the Christian, this is the good news. For those of us which are saved, we have New Jerusalem as our headquarters, if you will. We have Jesus as our high priest. We have our bodies as a temple of the Holy Ghost. So we don't need a church building. We don't need a geographical location like Rome. We have New Jerusalem, we have Jesus Christ, and we have our own bodies as a temple of the Holy Ghost. The Catholic system is redundant. The Catholic system is bogus. The Catholic system is a dangerous deception, a dangerous fable, a blasphemous and wicked system. And again, it cannot save anyone. And I dread to think how many people have perished in the Church of Rome, trusting in their works to somehow please the Lord and have died in that system. I think we can say with some sense of assurance, some sense of certainty that billions over the last 16 centuries have died and gone to hell as a result of trusting in the Catholic Church. But again, it doesn't need to be that way. You can be saved right here, right now. In fact, if I would stop speaking for five seconds, That's long enough for you to get saved. The thief on the cross looked at the Lord and said to remember him when he came into his kingdom. And the Lord saved that thief on the cross. And that account from Luke 23 was put into the scripture for two reasons. Number one, it was put in to show that anyone could be saved at any time under any circumstances. And it was also put between the Old Testament and the New Testament the transition from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant to prove that people from the Old Covenant and those in the New Covenant, those from the Old Testament going into the New Testament, are saved the same way. It's by grace. In the Old Testament, 
Abraham and the patriarchs and the children of Israel are saved by believing on a promise. Those of us in the New Testament are saved by believing on a person. A person that we believe on gave the promise back in the Old Testament. It's grace from creation to Calvary. It's grace from creation to the end of the millennium. There's no works involved. And I think if churches knew that, they would see a great revolution in their midst. At the same time, if they would be honest with themselves and preach that message, they could probably reach more people for the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think it also goes back to organised religion. It goes back to such, such churches wanting to retain people in their systems. They are fearful that if they teach faith alone, through grace alone and Christ alone, that they will lose people, that people will no longer go to their churches and stop tithing, which could happen. Because once you are saved, you don't need to be part of a church system. I'm not against breaking bread with other people. We do that. But I don't think you need to do that in order to stay saved. You don't need to do that in order to earn favour with the Lord. And I think if people realise that, they could breathe again. And unfortunately, churches aren't going to teach that because they are fearful of losing incomes. And that's why most churches teach a faith and works package, which is blasphemous, which according to Galatians is another gospel. And according to 2 Corinthians 11 is from the devil. And that's how serious this whole subject is. So on that note, I will sign out and I wish you every blessing, every happiness. Please continue to read along with me in spirit every day if you can. And prepare to be blessed, prepare to be blown away, prepare to discover things which you've either forgotten or have yet to discover. This book is loaded with truths, with life-changing facts and statements. And the more you read, the more you will grow, and the more you grow, the more you will be able to speak to people about the Lord. And your confidence in the book and in the Lord will increase as well. It's all about a relationship. It's all about a relationship. No more, no less. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Study. Study and study, and the Lord will bless you abundantly. And that's all I can say. And on that wonderful thought, may the Lord bless you all in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.